Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, Amina. Hi, Jesse. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Of course. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, so I guess we'll start by introducing ourselves. Um, okay. Uh, I'll go first. Um, so I am Jesse Jessica Stevens. I am the author of the exhibition of Persephone Q, uh, which came out in March, uh, just before we entered this pandemic. And um, I'm calling from Brooklyn. And I'm currently um, on my roof and uh, looking out at, I can catch just a glimpse of the Manhattan skyline from here. Uh, and I am Amina Kane. I'm the author of a novel called Indelicacy that came out in February and a short story collection called Creature that's been out for a few years. I'm calling from Los Angeles. I'm in my house, I'm sitting in front of a large window that looks out onto some hills with a lot of houses on them. Um, it's it's still light out. Uh, not, I guess it'll get dark in about another hour or so. And what's the weather like out there, Amina? It's been uh, strangely chilly and rainy um, in the last almost month, I think. We had, it, it got warm for a while and then it got chilly and rainy again. But I think we're in for some warm weather tomorrow. Nice. You guys had rain today also? Yeah, yeah, big rainstorms. Um, and it stopped just a few hours ago. And so the city has that fresh just after rain um, feelings. This is the first time I've been outside all day. So that feels nice. Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. Um, so I guess um, I was going to do uh, just a quick a brief reading, and then Amina and I were going to chat a little bit about the book. Um, so just a bit of background before I dive in. Um, at the center of my novel is a photography exhibition that features the Manhattan skyline, which has been digitally manipulated. And the book is set in New York just after 9-11, when the skyline, of course, has been drastically altered um, right after, right after the, the 9-11 attacks. And as I mentioned, I'm calling from my own roof where I can catch just a glimpse of the Manhattan skyline, which lately has also been altered because the Empire State Building 
um, like tonight, is often lit up bright red and flashing like a siren um, in, in honor of COVID victims and all the essential workers uh, who are on the front lines of our current crisis. So it gives the skyline a very eerie mood that echoes the book um, and maybe New York just after 9-11. So I'm going to read a very brief scene in which my narrator, Percy, um, finds herself a bit at the end of a rope and has also um, taken refuge on her roof. So. On those rare evenings when I am feeling truly low, when not even the library, Encarta, Napster, beauty blogs, the self-help author's website and message box, asking Jeeves or the AIM chat box, when not even the porn star or the scientist can affect some improvement in my mood, I take refuge on the roof. The roof will remind you that in the grander scheme of things, you are doing okay. So Misha always said, our building was seven stories tall and it was true that from this vantage, the world was much improved. Outside, I breathed in the cool syrup of the night and felt my nausea calm. The laundry I had hung the day before floated on the line, laced with snow. Misha's sleeves tangled with mine. Bras lifted and fell like sighs. I caught one. The cups were half frozen and stiff. I released a sweater from its clothespins and pulled it over my head. It was my mother's, though I had been wearing it since I was young. Down below, Manhattan unfurled itself into 4 a.m. Traffic flowed through the avenues, soft and steady as waves. Misha had installed a lawn chair by the balustrade in the summer, and I reached between the plastic belts of the seat for the biscuit tin in which I kept a stash of cigarettes. Inside, a book of matches and three packs of camel lights. I had, I had smoked sporadically for many years. What else is there to do on late night walks? But after Misha moved in, my cigarettes had begun to disappear. I'd counter hid them in this tin. I looked into the shallow basin now, lit a camel, then immediately tossed it into the street. Leaning over the balustrade, I watched it flutter to the ground. I reached for another. Luxury assorted, advised the biscuit lid. I was still at the cornice, trying not to smoke, when I heard someone at the hatch. The door swung slightly open. It was barely ajar. Then a woman slunk through the narrow gap. It was Claire from across the hall. Her eyes were swollen and sad and settled on me with a kind of quiet greed, as if finding me here on the roof might sate some kind of hunger. Her running tights shimmered with patterns and over the these she wore a loose cranberry sweater. She delicately cleared her throat. Could I have one of those? I offered her the tin. Have them all, I said. I'm trying to quit. Okay. Thank you. That was that was so great. Um, and I'm glad you were able to read it on your own roof. Yeah. Um, well, first, I just want to say congratulations. I, I think that the exhibition of Persephone Q is a really incredible book. Um, and it made me think a lot about the possibilities just in the form of the novel. And um, the exact moment I knew how much I was going to like the book came pretty early on, on page four. There's a, there's a passage there that I really love. And I was wondering if you would mind if I read it real quick out loud. Sure. Okay. 
Um, once while we were walking along Central Park after dinner, a child stole my purse. I watched him dash away down the street, his small red cap tracing a lovely bouncing pattern along the gray stone of the boundary wall, like a paintbrush loaded with red paint. Misha threw up his arms in exasperation. What was I doing? Run. But I stood still and calmly stunned, watching the red cap fade. Um, <laughs> I, I was so taken with that image. It's um, really evocative and nice. Uh, but I think it also tells us something about Percy that's um, you know, also pretty early on that in this moment, she's more taken in by this visual effect than in what's just happened to her. And to a large extent, it seems she lives in her own world, um, like Persephone Q's underworld, sort of separated even from her husband, even though she loves him. Um, and she seems to go further into this world by by taking walks at night, you know, she starts to starts to sleep at odd hours when Misha's not sleeping, opposite hours to him and most other people. And I found myself very interested in how I felt you created a kind of underworld um, yourself, and not in a fantastical way, but maybe more plainly. And when I say plainly, I, I mean that as compliments, um, subtly and. I was wondering if you could speak to that in some way, or um, or at least just to how you see the world in the space of the novel, especially in relationship to Percy's place in it. Yeah, um, I guess you can't see me just nodding along as you're talking. Like, you know, <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Um, so also, I think I like it much better when you read <laughs> than when I do um, from this book. But um, yeah, I, I was very much, um, when, when I had chosen to include um, this uh, allusion to the, the myth of, of Persephone, I was very much thinking not only of having a bifurcated life, living, you know, straddling two worlds, um, but also kind of inhabiting uh, kind of an underworld, you know, in the literal sense, as you mentioned, that Percy is always up at night. Um, she's walking around the city at night. Um, and then also in this sense of having retreated from the world around her, partly because the book is taking place in a moment of crisis, um, when everything feels eerie and strange and um, unfamiliar. Um, when I had started the book, I, I was writing the first drafts just leading up to the 2016 election and had originally chosen that setting because I thought the 9-11 setting would foreground what I thought was a very contemporary mood um, and which has you know, become contemporary once more, especially in New York um, at, at the epicenter of this, this pandemic when, when the world and the city um, again feel very unfamiliar and kind of uh, estranged. And I think that there's also a sense in which Percy is, she's newly married. She got married to her husband, Misha, just after 9-11. She is at the beginning of the book, six weeks pregnant. And I think there's a bit of a coming of age story here too, and being on the cusp of transition and Percy as being the kind of person who has maybe bought into myths of 
self-invention and self-madeness and, and you know, determining her own identity. Questions of identity are central to the book. And so I wonder if in some ways this the sense that she's living in her own world, her own kind of reality that even often contradicts consensus reality is almost a bit of a, um, a protective measure that she's taking in order to protect those myths. You know, the idea that she can still become anyone even as she's on the cusp of um, these, these very permanent transitions. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, so you were working on the book in the fall of 2016 and then were you working on it? You were in the middle of it, so then you were working on it after that when Trump became president, for instance? Yeah, so I think I, I must have started it right around, like right at the beginning of January in 2016. Um, so maybe at a moment when we were, remember when there were 20 Republicans on stage and, and having those debates and, and we were sort of, uh, Trump was not the, a front runner at that time. Um, but the debates themselves still felt very eerie and charged, and there was a lot of violent rhetoric. And then as we went deeper and deeper into 2016, um, you really had this sense that versions of, of reality and truth were beginning to collide um, in a pretty um, charged way. Yeah, that would be such an intense time to be in the middle of a book, in the middle of working on a book, definitely. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I, I thought a lot too about, um, negative capability when I was reading the novel. Um, I mean, it, it's something I'm sort of eternally interested in. I'm, I'm often thinking of it just in life, um, and in writing, but with writing kind of specifically how a writer can work with it and still kind of maintain a forward momentum. Um, so, you know, for instance, in your novel, the reader we'll never really know whether or not Percy appears, you know, in those photographs. Um, and uh, Percy doesn't know herself why she pinches, you know, Misha's nose at night when he's sleeping. Um, and we don't know if her neighbor Harold has left his girlfriend Claire or something more sinister has happened. And there's just a lot about, and you know, when I think about the time you were in, it, makes sense, but there, there seems to be a lot about the unknown, the unknowable, um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, it, well, I was curious, and, and now I have even more thoughts about it, you know, when you were writing the novel, how you were thinking about the unknowable and about mystery, maybe holding two ideas in the reader's mind at the same time. Yeah, I mean, during, so, during 2016, you know, the idea of truth or the idea of a, a consensus reality felt very much on trial. Um, so I, I think there, there are two ways that I, that I was thinking about this idea of negative capability or, or ambiguity and, and sort of resisting um, simple uh, reconciliations of, of contradictions. And on the one hand, I think in my approach to, to fiction, it's something that I think a lot about too, because I, I think that ambiguity is still the domain of, of the narrative arts and, and of fiction in particular, um, and that we can still dwell in, in things that are irresolvable uh, and, and well in history, and that um, there's a, 
need, if not even a moral imperative of being able to live with ambiguity, right? Um, And then on the other hand, in terms of the way that I was responding to the moment in which I was writing, it, it really felt that there that there that different narratives were colliding and that it was causing um, you know major disruptions and, and a kind of violence um, and so that that idea of not really knowing um, that that idea of different narratives colliding um, and and not quite knowing uh, what is true, um, mm-hmm. I think was was also something that I, I was interested in pulling through the novel. And I, I guess that becomes, um, you know, there, there are all of those examples that you mentioned, and it also becomes quite literal, uh, that idea of, of realities colliding um, and ambiguities and, and who do we believe and who do we feel comfortable believing, um, questions of authority, of you know, whose narrative carries authority. All of those questions, I think, become most foregrounded in, in the exhibition that, that is at the center of the book. And, you know, for, for those who um, aren't, aren't familiar with the plot, uh, Percy finds out that she is the, that she is pictured in, in an exhibition um, that is being staged in a gallery in Chelsea, only no one believes her when she says that she is the woman in the pictures. So she, you know, claims to be that woman, only no one else um, accepts her sort of version of reality. So that kind of central contradiction of narratives. And we're not quite sure if we ever even believe Percy as well, um, you know, definitely foregrounds this idea of which narratives carry authority and um, uh, the ambiguity and, and different versions of reality all being asserted at once. Yeah, I, I really like, um... When when Percy goes to see her her ex fiance to talk to them about to talk to them about this, um, and they they look together, you know they kind of blow up the the images, right. of the images so that they can kind of look together and you know you would think that he would sort of know the answer, um, but it's it becomes this kind of investigation. It's sort of a sweet moment I think this investigation, you know, between the two of them um, to kind of get yeah. to the truth. I, I think that's another kind of ambiguity that is there in the book because I'm not sure. I mean, I think that Percy, in her own way, can be unlikable. She can be. Um, we we might not know to what extent we we should or, or want to believe her, uh, but the fiance who is um, responsible for these pictures uh, and and for the exhibition. Um, you know, there's a, there's a way in which we question his authority to use this picture of her, um, and she's nude in the photographs as well. Um, and though you can't quite see her face, so she's difficult to identify. Uh, and in a way, that's deeply uncomfortable. Um, and then I, I think you're right that in that moment when she goes to confront him, and, and he doesn't even remember as well, um, there, there's almost something kind of uh, sweet or, or conciliatory in the way that they're both trying to make sense of um, of the past that they seem to remember very differently. Yeah. 
Um, I, I think, you know, I, I said earlier that um, the novel made me think just about what's possible, you know, in the novel form. And um, a big part of that for me is the way you uh, worked with structure um, in the book. And I, I absolutely love the digression Percy takes when she, you know, when, when she does go to see her ex-fiance and, and she's describing her childhood and her life to him, even sort of her life you know, as their relationship was ending. Um, and up until this point, you know, like just, just thinking about Percy as a character and you, and you said, you know, you were talking about the idea of whether or not the reader believes her or can't believe her. Um, as readers, we've been very much in her present moment with her and in, you know, the years that just preceded it. Um, but we don't know a lot about her. And there's, it's not a blankness to her necessarily, but there's sort of an absence created around her character, I think. Um, so that the diversion, you know, that, you know, if you want to call it a diversion that she takes into her life, uh, you know, when she starts talking about her life, it feels to me like it comes rushing in with all of this fullness. Um, and I loved both the sense of that sense of absence and this fullness. And I love the feeling that I entered a different space within the same novel. It almost felt like a slightly different style of writing. I mean, not, not, not completely. And I feel like there's the, the transitions, you know, the, there's more I wanna say about transitions, but the transitions between them feel pretty, feel pretty seamless. And like they're speaking the set, the parts you know, the, the novel is divided into three parts and that I, I feel the, not, the parts are kind of speaking to each other in a really nice way. Um, but it, it, yeah, all of that is just was, was felt, felt really interesting to me. And it felt right that um, this part of the novel happens kind of towards the end, you know, that it doesn't come in the beginning. Um, and when we, when we come out of this sort of, I guess what I would call new narrative space, um, the original narrative space is still suffused with it, kind of in a really dreamy way. And um, not too long after that, the novel ends. Um, and I, I read the conversation you and Patty Cottrell had in The Believer, which I thought was great, by the way. But, um, and both of you kind of refer to that part of the novel as a novella, you know, a novella being tucked away, kind of surprise novella in the novel, which I, I love thinking of it that way. And um, I, I guess I just wondered how you came to this, you know, novella and um, how it affected or changed your own ideas about the kind of novel you wrote or, you know. Yeah. Gosh, I really like just so much of, what, of the way that you're describing that. I mean, there's just so much in, um, in that that really resonates with um, what was on my mind um, and, and the choices that I that I made in investigating this structure. Um, I think, I mean, uh, yeah, there, there are a few things. So first, uh, on, on a more superficial level, like I, I think that this is a, um, this can be an uncomfortable novel, but I, I like to think that there are moments when it offers um, some comic relief as well, that, that it is in its own way a comic novel. Um, and I guess with this framed novella or this or this uh, second section, uh, this new narrative space, um, 
I think there is a little bit of a structural joke there and that Percy confronts her fiance and she says, I just need five minutes. Um, and, then, and then she goes on for 40 pages. Uh, and, and I thought there's something, you know, subtly amusing in that. Um, and, but in those 40 pages, we really do get her backstory. And you said there's maybe a kind of absence or, or a flatness to, to Percy uh, beforehand. And, in part, she doesn't really have memories. We learn just a little bit about the fiance who has staged this exhibition in their previous relationship, um, but we don't really learn anything about her her life um, and her kind of origin story. And we get all of that information at once here. And to the extent that the book is interested in questions of identity and American approaches uh, to that question, I was thinking of amnesia as a bit of a American state of mind um, and I was thinking about what happens if I have a character who for the beginning of this book and really for two-thirds of the way you know through the narrative is not so in touch with her past is not so historical and then maybe part of the change that she that she goes through um, is confronting that past and mm -hmm. I, I, it was intentional and I'm, I'm really uh, it means something to me to hear that it feels that when we re-enter um, the, the main narrative mode of the novel that we see Percy a little bit differently mm -hmm. uh, and that her, her narrative now suffused with the information that we know about about her and that we gleaned from from hearing about her past in that second part of the novel. Yeah, I, um, I, I like that as well. You know, like the fact that she she asks for five minutes of her fiance's time, and then, and then goes on for forty pages. Um, that I I found that very funny, and I also found it funny that, and this is kind of starting to speak to transitions, but that uh, Percy is leaning against a door and crouched on a doormat, right? The entire right, time. Yes. <laughs> yes. right. I'm so glad you noticed that, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that because, you know, for most of us, we're on a doormat for a second, like we're walking in and out of a door. Like, I don't think anyone has that experience, I think, of, of you know, and the fact that um, this novella could sort of, that that's where she's placed throughout, you know, like she's on this, right. this doormat. And it did, you know, like just the sort of, symbolism of doors. I felt some humor there, you know, just in terms of like thresholds and sort of, you know, these transitions um, that I think is very nice. But also when, you know, when we, as the readers, like when we start reading part three, um, the first sentence I believe is, um, how far away my fiance seemed, he was all the way on the other side of the room. Just that like, we're sort of pulled directly back into the moment, but with this sort of gulf of distance between them in the room, um, you know, and, and like I said, she's, she's crouched on the doormat. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very nice. Um, and yeah, yeah. what were you going to say? It's just, I mean, that is, it was a tricky transition. It's an abrupt transition. You've been in, I think, you know, I like your, your term uh, that we've been in a, a different narrative space, a new narrative space for so long that it is a very abrupt transition to kind of fall back into uh, the main narrative mode. Um, but I guess, I mean, 
you know, Percy to every fault of her own can also act as a bit of a doormat of her own life. Um, so I guess <laughs> it seems, um, uh, you know, maybe a little unfair to have placed her there, but uh, in the same way, not, not entirely inappropriate. No, no, I think it's, I think it's so funny. I, I actually love the transition. I mean, I like that we're sort of, that we come right back to as I said, like the two of them in the room, but like this gulf between them. Um, and it really, I mean, I really did feel like the part three was, like I said, suffused with, with part two, you know, like we're kind of going back to that original narrative space, but we, I don't feel that we completely leave part two and it almost it feels like, and maybe because they're, you know, Misha ends up, doesn't want Percy to go with him know into the building you know so like she has she kind of wanders on her own again and she she finds buck she sees buck um and for me it's almost like a almost not like drugged feeling but there's just some you know like it's still dreamy you know like there's this dreaminess in part three and she sees him and i found it really interesting that it's not the very end of the novel but pretty close to it um she kind of she she runs into buck again you know, who is a, who's a character who's appeared earlier in the novel who has, um, a, I guess, a pretty bad sore on his nose that uh, it's hard not to look at, you know, and it, it really stands out. And she kind of tricks him into going to the hospital. They first go to eat in the cafeteria. And then, you know, before you know it, um, she's leaving. He's, he's staying to take care of the, the sore, right? So I found that, you know, I found that really interesting. And I was curious about, you know, how... Kind of what that could mean or, or how Buck, you know, how that scene kind of made it, it feels significant, you know, like it's a very pivotal or, or important part of the novel, like how, how that scene or those scenes kind of made it into this, the close to the ending. Yeah, I think that is an important moment for Percy. And as we were discussing earlier, living in her own world or dissociated or in her own kind of underworld, I think an effect of that in the novel is to neglect those around her, um, to neglect her, her husband, um, and, and to not fully uh, embrace both the, the intimacy that is in her life um, and to have not really entered kind of relations of care with, with other people um, fully. And I wonder if, this is one of those moments um, when she's finally let go of, to some extent, so, some of the illusions she had before about um, about always being able to determine who she is in a way that actually makes it difficult for her to uh, to fully enter other relationships. And, and she's, she's outgrown uh, some of those illusions by, by the end of the book. Um, then, then there's this moment in which she's actually able to care for someone else or to help someone else um, in, in a meaningful way. Um, and, and they do, they go to the hospital uh, and you know, presumably uh, Buck is able to receive the care that he that he needs. So, yeah, 
that makes sense to me. I mean, she does seem different to me as a character after part two mm -hmm. and part three. And, you know, when she sees Nisha at the end of the novel, there's a, there's a connection you can feel between them too, you know. That, yeah. And I, I think also in, in part three and just before Percy does meet Buck uh, in, in her neighborhood on the street, there, there's also a real sense of loss where she begins to register what, you know, keeping, keeping so much from Misha for so much of the book, uh, what the consequences of that might be, right? Um, so I think that's another shift uh, in her mood and, and the what it means to register that idea of to, to always assert that you can reinvent yourself, um, that you can determine kind of who you are on your own is also to end up alone a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, to pivot a little bit, I was, um, so, the first time I read the writing um, was maybe a year ago, maybe a little more. Um, I read a short story by you called The Party, I think, in the Paris Review. And um, I really liked it. And I, I became interested right away in your writing. And then I read, you know, the exhibition of Persephone Q. And I really liked that. And I felt even more interesting, but, or I mean, interested in your writing. and. Um, I'm struck though, they, they feel, there's something that feels very different to me about, um, I've only read one of your short stories, but about that short story and about the exhibition of Persephone Q, um, again, not, you know, not like drastically different, but maybe there's something a little different um, stylistically or um, in terms of tone and, Something interesting that, uh, another interesting thing that you said in your conversation with Patty, you guys talked a little bit about this idea of persona. And I, I think mm -hmm. you said something like, um, like a question you ask yourself is, um, maybe with each new piece of writing, what kind of persona are you performing? And I was curious um, if, if you feel that that kind of comes into play when you write short stories versus the novel, or if it's just like any new text, you know, that, that that's something that kind of comes into play or, or yeah, or just your, maybe your relationship to writing short stories and to writing um, the novel. And I was also curious if you're working on a collection of short stories. Yeah. Um... So I think that that persona, I often think of the first person voice as a kind of affect a little bit. Um, and, and the kind of affect that and, and persona that your first person narrator is trying to project to the reader uh, versus the, the person that they might actually be or the state that they might actually be in, but that they might be trying to hide a little bit. And I do, I feel torn because I, uh, I, I also think that the party is very is very different um, from from the novel, um, and that my short stories are very different. And you know, when I the I guess the novel had actually come from merging two short stories. I had one story about um, 
a, a woman who had reason to get in touch with a former fiance from her past and another story about a woman who passes a gallery, sees a photo and realizes that it's her only again, no one else believes her. And I sort of merged those two short stories and the, the kind of really frenetic voice that I often have on my short stories, I, I wondered about sustaining that for a novel and whether a novel could sustain that. Um, I'm sure I could be very much disproved uh, by someone like Beckett <laughs> um, or, uh, but I, I, I felt like I had to um, recalibrate. And I guess it's when, when I was writing a longer form narrative. But that makes me think again about this question of persona. Um, and was I, you know, adjusting the kind of persona or was I adjusting sort of the like urgency of someone's denial, I guess, um, or, or the kind of uh, frenetic energy that they, that they bring to the telling. Um, and I, so I, I have been continuing to write short stories. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that they accrue into a collection, uh, but I'm, I'm kind of not pursuing that um, as, as intentionally in a way because I feel like ideas for short stories sort of, um, they arrive when they do. <laughs> I have to wait for them a little bit. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm waiting for enough to arrive that, that they might, um, that, that maybe they would wind up in a collection, but. Yeah, it's, uh, I wrote, you know, I pretty much only wrote short stories and then I wrote a novel and the idea of writing a novel felt impossible. And now it feels <laughs> hard to think of going to, of writing short stories and. Um, oh, I feel that way too, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's hard to, to start things over again and again, you know, with the short stories, like there, there's something nice about creating a world of something and then just, you know, staying in it for a while. Yeah, yeah, I think there is more of a sense of, yeah, beginnings are hard. Um, and they're very difficult in novels too, but I guess you're, you are working with the same beginning for a while. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to do it again and again. And so, are you working on another novel now? I am. Yeah. Um, and I guess you know we've been talking about persona and and first person voice. And I have I've been writing pretty exclusively in in third person recently. Um, and so so I've been working in that mode uh, on, a, on a new manuscript, yeah. That's exciting. Um, it is, yeah, it feels different. Um, I guess I, I, I think there's so many reasons why you, why you sit down to write the novel that you, that you do, but I do like to have, you know, one of those reasons for me is I do like to have a kind of formal problem or, or a, that I'm interested in. Um, and I guess I was interested in uh, 
and working uh, in third um, and kind of teaching myself that mode. Yeah. So. yeah. Are you, you know, just um, how does writing feel to you now, you know, just in this time of the coronavirus, the coronavirus and all the uncertainty it holds? And, you know, as you said, you're in New York in an epicenter um, of this. Ha have you been able to work on your, your novel? Um, do you feel like the time is, if you are working on it, do you feel like this time is changing anything in it or just, just yeah, how is that space for you right now? Yeah, I, I, as soon as you asked if I was working on something else, you know, that, that really came to mind. Um, I think that one way that I, I mean, New York does feel very eerie right now. It feels very sad. Um, I'm, I mean, I think you can hear some sirens. Uh, on on the call right now, um, I you know I tend to go for a walk after dark when the streets tend to be a little bit emptier, um, and you just see so many fire trucks, so many ambulances, um, and it's really kind of heartbreaking. And at the same time, I feel like one way that I have been uh, coping is by writing a little bit manically and often I found that I end up writing very late at night when it feels like the news turns off and the world turns off for a little while the world stops collapsing for a few hours um, or it becomes easier to pretend um, so I have been able to work but I'm writing much later than I usually do um, in part because those are the only uh, hours and I feel like I can focus a little bit but but what about you um and, and what's it like uh writing in in LA right now or or are you able to write um I have been writing some short things that I've had deadlines for um I I've definitely found focus hard it's it's getting a little easier um you know it's I I was feeling pretty anxious um, in the beginning, you know, of all of this in the first few weeks, especially. Um, I'm not quite as anxious as I was. I think I was just sort of shocked, you know, by what was happening and, and writing then felt uh, sort of impossible, um, you know, but now I've just been in this house for, I guess, like over a month now. Right. Uh, I, I rarely get out uh, and, you know, I, I, I've not been, you know, I have a book that I'm trying to finish and so I, I need to pick that book up and, and finish it. But um, I think I feel ready to do that. But it's, you know, yeah, it's hard. It's a hard time, obviously. It I'm, is hard, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm definitely thinking of everyone in New York because um, I have, you know, I have some friends there. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking of all of you guys there and, um, have you been, I, we've talked a little bit about some of the, the reading we're doing. Um, you've mentioned some books you've been reading that are, that are in the, like the realm of, of batshit crazy. Um, yeah, has, exactly. Right. Intentional because of the time we're in or have you, it's just more of a coincidence. Uh, maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, I had mentioned, uh, that I I was finishing The Idiot um, right when this started, and we had said, you know, that, that is a, qualifies in the maybe batshit genre in, in some ways. Um, and 
I have been interested in The Idiot also because it's a novel about illness in its own way. Um, you know, ignorance and illness were kind of on my mind. Um, and since then, I was reading Our Lady of the Flowers uh, by Jean Genet. Um, and because a novel that's has a lot of masturbation scenes and was written while someone was in prison and on brown paper bags because that's the only paper he had um, seemed like an appropriate quarantine read. Yeah. Um, and uh, I finally got around to Kathleen Collins's short story collection, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, uh, which is just as good as everyone has said it is. Um, so that, that's what I've been reading lately. That's what about awesome. you? Um, I am currently reading The Door by Magda, I probably mispronounced her last name, um, Sabo. Have you read That's that? That's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Is it? Okay. I, I love her work. I really love her work. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been meaning to read this book for a long time. I don't know why it's taken me so long, but, um, I, I love it so far. Uh, yeah. It has its own batshit elements to it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, she does rage very well. It's got a fairy tale quality and then and then also this kind of pure rage um, that becomes really wonderful when captured in a small domestic space uh, as it is in that book. Yeah. Um, I'm envious that you're reading it for the first time. I know. It's, it's so nice to read an amazing book for the first time. Yeah, it really is. So, and um, so I guess, you know, neither of us are, are real podcast hosts here, but we discussed, you know, trying to do some ads, uh, like genuine podcast hosts, but um, maybe ads for uh, local organizations um, who are helping out uh, during this crisis. Um, I wonder if we could, you know, before we sign off, uh, give a little shout out to some of those organizations. Yeah, yeah, that, I would love to. Um, so I, I wanted to mention um, City Harvest here in New York, uh, which is a um, food uh, collection organization. They go around to restaurants and collect food that would otherwise go to waste, which is especially important right now. Um, and they redistribute that food uh, to those in need and to food banks around the city. Um, so you can donate to City Harvest at cityharvest.org. Um, and I also wanted to draw attention to um, some organizations that are raising uh, funds to provide bail for prisoners um, who are currently uh, being held uh, in jails around the country and especially in New York uh, where there are incredibly high rates of COVID infection um, and, and prisoners are at extremely high risk. And Two organizations that are working in that space um, that could use your help are um, the Bail Project, which is a national organization that works to provide bail um, for, for prisoners. And that you can uh, reach them at bailproject.org. And there's a local organization that's working um, in particular with New York prisons where there's an incredibly high rate of, uh, of infection. And that's covidbailout.org. Um, so again, that's cityharvest.org and bailproject.org and for providing bail for prisoners specifically in New York, um, there's covidbailout.org.
Um, and I just wanted to talk for a second about, uh, so there's a website called This Long Century. It's a really wonderful project. Uh, it's sort of an archive um, of artifacts by writers, artists, filmmakers, musicians. Um, this month in April, uh, there are 30 film, short films and videos um, on the website. And uh, it's, it's just, there are two programs in the series called Outside and Inside. And basically the, the filmmakers have, have donated um, these, have donate, donated their films. And this long century is asking that if you watch the films, you then donate to one of five organizations, um, including Feeding America, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, um, Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief Fund. Um, so these are all US based on profits and relief funds to help people who are in need right now. And it does occur to me though now because it's mid-April, um, all these films, and I started watching some of them the other night, they're wonderful. Um, they're, they're going to be up through the month of April, um, but it's occurring to me that I don't know exactly when this podcast will air. I don't know if April will be over. Um, right. Yeah, I just thought of that. So um, if it is still April when you are listening to this, please go to this, <laughs> thislongcentury.com and you can watch these wonderful films and donate to these organizations. Uh, if it's no longer April, I don't know, maybe somehow they'll still be up. And if they're not, then you could donate to um, Feeding America, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Navajo and Hopi, Families COVID-19 Relief Fund, um, the Ali Forney Center, um, those organizations. Thank you so much for, for mentioning that. That sounds fantastic. I will definitely be watching. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Amina, and for these fantastic questions. Um, you know, I guess these have been some strange and, you know, often dark days, but uh, this was a really wonderful respite. I'm so glad to have the chance to talk. Me too. Yeah, thank you so much for for talking with me. And um, I'm, you know, I was very sad that we couldn't, we couldn't talk at Skylight and, you know, we couldn't be at Skylight together. But this is, this is very nice. I'm, I'm glad that Skylight is, is doing this podcast series. And I'm glad we had a chance to talk about um, your amazing novel. I wish you the best with it. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you to Skylight for uh, hosting us virtually. So don't forget to order um, Indelicacy uh, from, from Skylight if you haven't, um, or, your other, or your other quarantine reading as well. So um, have, uh, be well, Amina, um, and have a good night. You too. Bye, Jesse. All right. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.